Welcome to the Gatecast and our journey to the Pegasus Galaxy and the City of the Ancients, Atlantis. Hello, warm and clammy and frankly crappy for me evening. Welcome to the Stargate Atlantis Season 1 wrap-up and we have our semi-regular subject to strange gettings up times guest. <laughs> Hi everyone, Brad here from Victoria, Australia. Thank you, Brad. Mike, any opening thoughts? Good evening, everybody. Only to second the comment that it's a bit hot and muggy, not as bad as last week, mm. thankfully, but still not pleasant to be sitting next to a PC with headphones on. Yeah, it's just under four degrees here, so I'm on a nice warm coffee. I am drinking a mix of sparkly water and what Dunn's laughingly calls pineapple juice drink. Add the word pure in there, because that would be stretching yeah. truth to the extent that even advertisers would have difficulty with. You'll often find me having an argument with the drinks machine at work. <laughs> orange drink with real fruit, and I just look at it. You mean orange juice? No, with fruit juice. Orange drink with fruit juice? No, you mean orange. <laughs> then what? Do you have to talk to it? Feel the need to vocally express my thoughts. If it's orange juice, it should be with real orange juice, not fruit juice. That sounds almost Adamsian. <laughs> Old tea, not tea thing. Much to my surprise in the numerous rummagings and diggings, I actually found my Half-Life 2 box. Oh, right. With the code? With the code, yes. After going through the trouble of re-registering on Steam. <laughs> I think associate the code with my new account. Steam's response to my requests were, if you don't have the code and you don't have the email address that you used, we're sorry, but tough. You could buy it again. It's only X amount. I'm thinking, <laughs> no, I have the game. I have the disc here. I just don't have the code. Yeah, that's it. That'd do it then. Although the Deadpool game on Steam is actually 50 euro. On PS3, in GameStop, it's 45. PC game playing friend is rather annoyed about that. Because it's a digital copy. He doesn't see why the PS3 physical copy should be cheaper. Volume, isn't it? Probably. There is actually a comment between voices. And the so-called intelligent voice goes, I only play games on PC. I'll tell you what I bought from Steam the other day. Mm-hmm. Kerbal Space Program. You build a rocket and you've got to launch it into orbit. That's pretty much it. <laughs> but it's also real fun. I finally got my rocket into orbit and had my little guy go on a little spacewalk. Unfortunately, I forgot to tether him. So <laughs> <laughs> off the rocket went and he was just floating there. In a mildly mm. decaying orbit. <laughs> At least his oxygen will run out before his orbit decays. Yeah, that's true. You know, would you rather suffocate or burn? Yeah, the age-old quandary. My inclination would be the jets and the helmet at that point. And Alfred Bester's the demolished man. He's on about the life instinct and the death instinct and the two battle each other. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. All I can think of is Babylon 5. Where do you think Joe got the name of the character from? I am enlightened. <laughs> oh, good. I aim to educate and elucidate. Got mentioned he got that book, Babylon 5 at 20 book. Oh, where did you mention it? sci-fi dig google plus oh cool yeah it wasn't the museum quality one and it was 10 percent of my luggage allowance so i gave it to him i do have the museum quality one i'm leaving it in the packaging because i'll be bunging it into my suitcase when i fly over there in the 22nd set my apartment up and take care of some details like registering as resident and technically i'll actually be resident from the 22nd of august right yeah it's confusing hi this is chris and this is rick and we're the hosts of the Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. We're celebrating the original Battlestar Galactica series, and we're doing that by uh, 
watching an episode in total and commenting on it as it runs. And you know what's really fun about it is we're attempting to bring guest hosts in with us so that we can talk kind of like that mystery science theater kind of thing. And we sometimes we make a little fun of the episode, and sometimes we talk about how cool it is, so you just never know what you're going to get when you listen. Yes. So come and join us. We're on iTunes. You can find us by searching for Ragtag Fusion Podcast, and we're on the Stitcher Radio Network. You also can visit our cool website and make comments and have fun looking around in the officer's lounge and all that jazz by going to ragtagfugitivepodcast.com. You have our word as a warrior. Word as a warrior? Plank down your cubits and come on over. And let's play a game of Pyramid, the Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. By your command. Check your Twitter. Batterson is being... <laughs> They're fighting words, though. Oi. <laughs> Alan posted, just recording the Atlanta Season 1 wrap-up, an episode I cannot get the number well, wrong on, because there is no number. <laughs> Don't get mad. Twilight Zone theme. <laughs> Patterson replied, you're still going to get it wrong. She knows us too well. I have tweeted. So, you're just about ready to go then? I can see carpet and walls and stuff. Bearing in mind from about a foot behind my chair to the back of the room, and pretty much floor to ceiling was boxes and crap. 80% of that is now gone. Ah, uh, yes, the dreaded moving. Floor-to-ceiling boxes and wheelie chairs and monitors and various other bits and pieces of crap. I just looked at it and went, there's too much. And wandered <laughs> away again. In fact, it's quite possibly more of a mess than it was. Okay then, folks, here we go. Season 1 of Stargate Atlantis. Come try ya! Oh, the blurb for Rising, parts 1 and 2, part 1. When SG-1 discovers what they believe to be the remnants of the lost city of the ancients, the originators of the Stargates... A new team of explorers, headed by civilian Dr. Elizabeth Weir, travels to the distant Pegasus galaxy, where they discover an advanced but deserted city on the ocean floor, a group of nomadic humans, and a deadly enemy that feeds on humans as an energy source. <laughs> that last sentence is just, well... So, opening thoughts on episode one, part one, I think? Music cues. Love the music cues in the opening scenes, and that the sort of carry-on from the end of Lost City part two. Uh, we got that Atlantis fame come in, and um, Rainmaker Studios done a good job this season. Money well spent, I think. If I know I wouldn't have, until Mike actually introduced it. If you hadn't known it was the Blade set, would you have recognised any of the bits? The City Internals? Mm. No. I haven't seen that movie for a long time. Was it Trinity, Mike? Yeah. The only obvious elements that you would recognise were the upper walkways, which are all steel supports. Obviously, they played a major part in the big action sequence at the end of the Blade movie. We only really see them in a few episodes of, Atlant- of Atlantis. Yes, Atlantis, the show we are talking about. Well, you brought up Blade. Well, that's true. <laughs> I was just slagging off your pronunciation. Rising, written by Robert E. Cooper and Brad Wright, directed by Martin Wood. Aired July the 16th, 2004. Notable guest stars Robert Patrick, Ona Grauer and Chris Heidal. Ah, Chris. And shall we do the running votes for each episode as we go along? By all means. We've done it more than twice. It's an established tradition now. Well, every time we do a wrap-up show, we we change things around. We forget. (laughs) Yeah, forget. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) You do it once, it's a new and shiny thing. You do it twice, it's a tradition. You do it three times, it's an established and ancient tradition. Considering that nobody voted for Rising Part 2, I think everybody treated it as one episode. It got seven votes. Could I be cruel and ask you where it puts it? We'll leave that till the end, shall we? Uh, <laughs> sounds of desperate Mike calculations in the background. 
I've already got them written down. Don't worry about that. Uh, I'm writing it all down. <laughs> I consider Rising to be an excellent pilot episode for the series. Probably just edging out Children of the Gods. Well, Children of the Gods is good. It, it's a little clunky. I think the point with Rising is they knew it was coming and... Well, it was technically a pilot. It was a well-established team. Yeah. The actors, some of the actors were new, but the point being, when I'm tempted to call the Wright brothers, they'd been doing this for quite a while. They're all hands, and it was in a universe that they had already established a lot of the rules for. They were just expanding upon it. Yeah, well, that's it. The production crew and everything, they've had seven years to master it. By the end of season seven, they was getting up there, and it was just easy step to go across and start this new series. Jack and Daniel back to kick it off, which is always good. And Amanda. Did we not have some Amanda? We had a little Amanda, didn't we? No, I don't think she was in it. Oh. <laughs> I tend to picture Amanda in everything. And nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd add that before one of you two did. That and the fact that the Target SG-1 box... I don't know where my Atlantis Season 1 box set has gone. Literally restructured the entire room the past two days. I still can't find it. Oh, that's not good. I mean, I found the Half-Life 2 box, which I haven't seen for six years, so... <laughs> Some of the awards and nominations for Rising. It won the Gemini for Best Visual Effects, and it also got nominated for a Leo Award for Dramatic Series, Best Production Design, a Primetime Emmy nomination for Outstanding Special Visual Effects, a nomination for the VES Award for Outstanding Visual Effects. Science fiction seems to be the poorest stepchild of Emmy Awards. They generally only get nominated for uh, what in movies would be the technical Oscars. They feel uncomfortable, I think, in acknowledging the fact that science fiction as a genre can actually be drama. And they lump everything together into, uh, you know, shiny space and blowing stuff up. Which I think does genre as a whole and individual shows a great disservice. I've been reading the Echoes books. <laughs> you can play movies and television, you know. There seems to be a very definite line drawn between sci-fi and fantasy in the theatre and on television. Even, you know, in the cinema... When it comes to uh, dramatic performances and whatnot, it tends to always go to the more mainstream dramas. Unless it's Lord of the Rings. Yeah, well, that, that's a, it really comes down to, oh, look, this movie made us billions, let's give it yeah. some awards. Yep. Or this movie didn't, let's give it an award and people will go and watch it. <laughs> or people will buy it. Sympathy vote. Yeah, it's like, I think it was about five or six years ago, someone got a Lifetime Achievement Award and his response was a rather irascible, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> The actual story, introduction of the Wraith and uh, Bob, <laughs> Shepard Carr, what did we think of the team as it was assembled? How did we react to the new actors and the overall dynamic? I don't think we really knew enough about them from just the pilot. Yeah, yeah, they seemed to start off all right. The course, as it went on, the bonds grew stronger and you could see that on the screen, so... Yeah, well, that, that were Rodney super though. <laughs> in terms of established characters and the viewpoints... Atlantis Rodney is a lot less irritating than Stargate Rodney. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think we could have got that episode after episode. Turning to Kavanaugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was a year older and he'd been to Russia and that kind of took a bit of the, the edge off him. I don't imagine his persona went down really well. Rodney in Russia as the equivalent of uh, Riker on a Klingon vessel. I, th I think there's parallels there. Although not, not quite the same threat of sudden death. I, I don't think... Uh, Rodney would have the, the skills and the talent to actually, you know, embed himself in another culture like that, though. Doesn't bode well for my upcoming immigration. <laughs> Come try ya! During a game of hide hyphen and hyphen seek, 
one of the Athosian children inadvertently releases a dark entity. And when Atlantis goes through a series of technical malfunctions, the team realizes that the shadowy creature is actually feeding off the power supply! Exclamation mark. Nods, I think, to the uh, bodiless Apophis here. Obviously, the effects house went, look, we didn't quite get the Apophis effect, but we can stick it into Atlantis and use it here instead. You mean Anubis? Anubis, yes. Sorry. That would have sounded so much better if I got the name right, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, don't worry, I'll take care of him. <laughs> no, you bloody won't. I know you. <laughs> I won't be silenced. <laughs> I could have made it seamless. All right, then. The story, Robert C. Cooper and Brad Wright, written by Robert C. Cooper, directed by David Weary Smith. First broadcast July the 23rd. And alas, it got no votes. When they launched Atlantis, they said, you know, we've got this great big city, we can have so many stories within the city itself. Well, this really was the first one, and it wasn't that good. <laughs> it had its moments. And McKay, this is the one where he played the hero, mm-hmm. he actually, because he did get that shield device stuck to his chest. Yeah, that, that was more of a comic relief, self-sacrifice than anything else. One is inclined to think. I mean, they're, they're not going to... This isn't a Joss Whedon show. They're not going to kill off a major character in episode two. It was a good little shock moment, though, when you see him fly off the balcony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I shot him. Do? Yep. <laughs> ah, that reminds me of uh, Richard Biggs' quote from Babylon 5. After having uh, Jason Carter wind him up repeatedly, the quote was, uh, oh, your honour is when I shot him. <laughs> we start to see a good bit of interaction between McKay and Beckett in this episode, too. The good doctor. And he likens medicine to voodoo at one, at one point as well. Carlson Beck at this point is uh, only a uh, semi-recurring character. I think he's lost into the toilet sequence until season two. Not that I've watched any of season two since it was broadcast, so I'm purely speculating here. We get a good opening matte painting of the city on the top of the ocean too, which we see a lot of in the future. I wonder if they kept the masters. I say Stargate have never been shy of uh, using a good matte painting more than once. Mm. Yes, doing this show has actually slightly ruined my approach to watching stuff. I'm thinking, is that map painting or is that CG or is it a combination? Can I see the edge there? Definitely is just sort of unplug and watch. I think one of you's brought it up in the episode with um, in reference to Rodney, the shield Rodney's wearing. If water, or in that case coffee, can't get through, how does air get in there? And also the kind of little continuity error with the chocolate bar. The shield incorporates anything which was inside it when it was activated. We don't really know how it works at that. No, unfortunately, neither does Rodney. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> and it was good to see, too, at one stage, Ford didn't hesitate to hit it. When Rodney told him to hit him, he didn't hesitate. he just done it. Mm. Yeah. I think that should be a Kavanaugh moment. So, zero votes. Not really much else to say about this one, is there? No, there isn't. Come try ya! So, we'll go straight on to the next episode, which is 38 minutes. Fleeing from a surprise encounter with the Wraith. The Atlantis team's puddle jumper speeds back towards the Stargate and becomes trapped when the puddle jumper suffers a mechanical failure. They have only 38 minutes before the Stargate shuts down. And with the front half of the ship already dematerialised in the event horizon, the puddle jumper will be cut in half. That sounds exciting. <laughs> doesn't mention the Eurasus bug at all. Well, that's only kind of a minor point. It, you know, Shepard sitting on his backside against the rear bulkhead, flinching with this uh, plastic... Duck-like <laughs> entity on his neck. Rubber decoy. <laughs> Rubber decoy? With children listening? I imagine you know, like entire families sitting in their car listening to the podcast as they drive somewhere. Right then, uh, 38 Minutes is written by Brad Wright, directed by Mario Azapardi, broadcast July the 30th, 2004. And it got eight votes. Ooh, more mm. than the rising. Popular. That's a respectable number of votes. Return to the gate issue pro- uh, episode. 
Mm. So much for setting ones inside the city. Although, maybe uh, this is the first time we see uh, Zelenka. Ah, yes, Zelenka. And Kavanaugh. Uh, Kavanaugh, <laughs> the, the target for annoyances. Although, to be honest with you, I mean, the guy is saying what a lot of people are thinking. Most people have the good sense not to say it. <laughs> yeah, that's an annoying thing. Most of what he says, there is some reason and logic behind it, just not very much compassion and emotion. He's a scientist. He doesn't display compassion and emotion. <laughs> You know, everything's supposed to be disconnected, not referenced type of thing. I personally prefer emotion and passion, but that's me. Good episode, though. You know, the A and B stories work well together. Yeah, we get a couple of firsts. We get a couple of firsts in this episode, too. We um, get the gate room warning alarm, which I like that alarm. Rachel fires a weapon for the first time this episode. And Rachel does that, not until Taylor fires as well, but she'd never fired a weapon before this episode. Mm-hmm. I'm not keen on weapons. And Rodney once again reminds us of his own mortality. But no mention of his citrus allergy. No. <laughs> and although we hate him, Kavanaugh's right most of the episode. He's just got the wrong attitude about it. Yeah, especially when he confronts Weir. Mm. The character comes off as a right dick, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Seems hard to believe that the jumper wouldn't have some sort of blinking light on it to say the engines hadn't retracted properly. But it's a great shot of it hanging out of the gate. Mm. Or wedged in the gate. It's a shame it's the space gate, otherwise they could just open the back door. They do, in the end, open the back door. The old vent the atmosphere, almost a science fiction trope, as well as touching on what would suppose conservation of momentum and little physics there. Yeah, fun little episode. I don't recall being bored in it. No, it went rather quickly. And clearly a lot of people liked it, but I'm not sure what percentage of people who liked everything can just keep a mental track of which one got the most votes. Yeah, I just return to the classic gate problem that we saw in the early episodes of SG-1. I mean, that's where most of the love comes from. As you said, the practical effects with the radius bug and that aren't, aren't the best. It's also establishing part of the mythology. True. You know, they're building a universe here, Pete. Right. Mike, closing thoughts on that? It was a, a fun episode. A couple of good stories, character introductions, long-running plot element introduction, the curious part when uh, John was approached by a Wraith drone who actually just looked down at him you know, with the bug on him and just walked away. Mm. Which goes, yeah, well, he doesn't really worry about you. Mm. you know, you're finished. Sorry, mate, you're gone. Or sort of, uh, oh, look, he'll come and eat someone later. No, probably more like, uh, I'm not even going to do you the service of killing you. You're going to suffer. Unless he couldn't feed off him. And two Wraith feed off the one human at the same time. It might be like we'll, crossing the we'll streams. Co- we'll come back to that later. <laughs> It comes up later, does it? I was trying to be all mysterious there, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> Carry on, Mike. Come Suspicion. When the Atlantis team is ambushed by the Wraiths on an off-world trip, Dr. Weir begins to suspect that one of the Athosians is actually a Wraith spy. Despite the disapproval of Taylor and Shepard, she confines the Athosians to the south side of Atlantis and interviews them. When the interviews take on an accusatory tone... Growing tensions cause a mass exodus of Athosians from the city. Wonderful performance from Chris Hyden on this. We get to see Sergeant Bates debut in this episode. Ah, Sergeant Bates, the military version of Kavanaugh. <laughs> Don't we blow him up later? The two in the shuttle that stupidly exploded in a later episode, is he? No, he doesn't wear red. Oh. We see Ford becomes useful in this episode as a weapons expert. And we see just how good Taylor is with a stick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or a pair of sticks. Yes, walk softly and carry a big stick. <laughs> Unfortunately, we return to the same problem SG-1 had in later episodes. 
which must be skipped from their training, when you're coming through a gate under attack, you don't stand in front of it. <laughs> I.e. Rodney getting hit in the face with a stunner. <laughs> yeah, but on the bright side, it gives us a nice comic relief because Rodney can't talk. <laughs> Let's face it, in the average episode where somebody has maybe half a page of dialogue, Rodney will probably have five. <laughs> I almost feel sorry for Davy Hewlett. He goes, oh, God, I'm in this episode a lot. Excuse me while I spent three weeks learning the script. How <laughs> come my script is thick? How <laughs> come I got 15 pages and everyone else was three? At least he's not liable to be cut. I thought Chris played the, the part there with quiet dignity. In other words, Taylor was a little more emotional. Suspicion from a story by Kerry Gulver, written by Joseph Malozzi and Paul Mully, directed by Mario Azapardi. It was broadcast August 6, 2004. Guest stars Agam Darshi uh, from Sanctuary. Mm. Uh, we get to see Zelenka again, uh, as mentioned. Uh, Sergeant Bates, played by Dean Marshall. Chris Idell and Paul McGillian. Mm. Suspicion got two votes. Uh-huh. It wasn't one of my favourite episodes. It always seemed a bit forced. Probably because Bates more than anybody, you know, they threw out the first season. They kind of overdid him a little too much. Well, again, the suspicion interrogation, the genuine suspicion turning into uh, device interrogation and people going power mad is something we've seen time and again in the genre. Mm. You know, you saw it in the Babylon 5 episode, Eyes. You saw it in Next Generation episode, bracket, Michael, can I insert the title in here, bracket. You're more familiar with track, I'm sorry, man. Not TNG, I'm not. Um, the one with the Admiral and the... Yeah, and the bug. Not so much the bug, more the... Um, well, the bug, but also the one I was thinking of was the guy who supposedly had a Vulcan grandfather who turns out to be Romulan. You know, it all becomes a test of loyalty and so on. Yeah. Test of loyalty or and or safety as an excuse for which one for those different. Something we've seen with McCarthy in real life, so it's, a, it's an easy trope to reference. You know, I thought it was interesting, especially tackling an issue like this early on. Mm. Well, I suppose it had to be done early on. True. Otherwise, it really wouldn't make sense if they'd been, they'd been there a year, then you start expecting someone to be a, a traitor. At this point, they've only met so many other uh, societies. Yeah, they don't have anyone to truly distrust, say, for, oh, I don't know, did you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all I've got to say, isn't it? You guys? Yeah, it seemed, it seemed to feel like it's on the way out here really work that well so it just feels like they're on the way out they only get the same once or twice again for the rest of the season yeah taylor aside of course um ford naming things atlantis has a sunroof <laughs> <laughs> um i've been in the military turkey sandwiches don't come in ration packs <laughs> and baits and with kavanaugh they seem to be right they just don't have the right attitude about them. i think that's what puts most people off about them come try ya. Okay then, we'll jump on to the next episode, Childhood's End. The team discovers a primitive, forest-dwelling tribe that has been untouched by the Wraith for centuries. Unaware of the electromagnetic field that protects them from the Wraith technology, the tribe believes that ritual suicide at the age of 25 keeps the Wraith at bay. To be honest with you, I didn't think it really addressed the ritual suicide. To the, I don't think it gave it the... It, it was referenced and it was put in as like, look, this is bad! You know, I don't think they explored it or gave it any degree of depth. It was just something to hold up and critique. They needed to see it maybe early on, you know, uh, someone throwing themselves off a cliff or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first day they arrived, yeah, flying over and seeing someone doing it, or when they come through the gate, they could have seen the demon boots there when they come through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd work. 
Sounds quake at least. Gone to a better place. I've often wondered is that a Pratchett reference to boots? In Discworld, you know, no matter how big the explosion, there's always a pair of boots with steam coming out of them. That formation by Stargate. Written by Martin Garrow, directed by David Winning. Broadcast August 13th, 2004. And it got a single vote. Yay. My first episode, I voted for this one. Did you? Yes. But then again, you voted for how many? <laughs> Classified. Right then. <laughs> how? Because he drives all over the bloody place and he gets different IP addresses every other day. I obviously didn't make it clear that you couldn't vote more than once. Except for ticking the box says, do not allow him voting more than once. <laughs> Never mind. That was a mistake. I was just going to say, I don't feel I swung the vote in either way. I was sort of like a vote here and a vote there for because there was a lot of good episodes this season. Yeah, there was. The episode did get a lot of awards, although not for what you'd consider. David Winning, the director, he won the Chicago International Film Festival Silver Plaque for Special Achievement Direction, New York's Festival Bronze Medal for TV Programming and Promotion, and World First Houston Platinum Award Television and Cable Production Directing. Zoe did all right by it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to pull up a new shelf to hold all these awards. I thought it was primarily a McKay episode. I tempted to vote for this because I do torn between McKay and Zelenka as favourite character, frankly. But Zelenka doesn't generally feature in season one enough to warrant a vote for an entire episode of him. Yeah. I identified very heavily with McKay, especially the whole sort of uh, awkwardness with the kids thing. That was just priceless. <laughs> the two kids with him and the chocolate. Yeah. Finally, child actors were working an episode. They weren't precocious or irritating. No. And if you want to feel your age, look at Jessica Amley as she was then and Google her now and look at what she is now. How many years has it been? Good God. Um, 16, roughly. <laughs> Hasn't been 16. You say 97? No, 2004. Oh, then nine. We've got a bit of the moral dilemma. You know, do they take the ZPM to protect Atlantis or... Damn. Yeah, exactly. Or leave it to protect <laughs> these... Uh, Youngsters. Mm. It wasn't a great episode in the fact that it wasn't fulfilling. You know, it was just there. It was a season one episode. Yes, it gave us some shots for the title credits. Yeah. <laughs> P90s versus bows and arrows and slingshots. Yeah, poor archery skills. Sort of reminds me of the girl who played Georgia Lass in Dead Like Me. One of those photos. But I suppose Hollywood is, uh, there's almost a cookie factory output, you know, like short, cute blondes. Come try ya! We'll move on to Poisoning the Well. Drawing a new gate address, the team encounters the Hoffen, the human civilization that developed the drug with the potential to make them immune to the Reich. When they learn the Reich's awakening at the hands of the Atlantis team, the Hoffen leaders grow impatient and demand that their people be inoculated before the drug is proven safe. Poor, poor, poor Carson. I feel sorry for Carson in this. And it's, it's a wonderful transfer to... I would like it in terms of the actor and in terms of what he's going through. He is a Canadian put on a fake Scottish accent. I think he does a better job of it than James Dillon ever did. Oh, well, he was born in Scotland. All right. Probably doesn't he hurt. In later episodes where he mentions his wee mother, I could actually picture this wee woman about, you know, four foot eight with the can of Baxter soup. <laughs> Edinburgh was going to be my second choice for a Masters. The only slight difference being it's about 15 grand... Sterling a year to study there. I can do it in Finland. Poison in the Well. Story by Mary Kaiser. Written by Damien Kindler and directed by Brad Turner. Broadcast August the 20th, 2004. And it got two votes. Notable guest stars Alison Hossack as Perna, the love interest, mm-hmm. and Alan Scarf as Chancellor Druin. Yeah. So uh, who does he remind me? That's who he reminds me of. Either of you see Revolution? 
No. For seven episodes. He reminds me of Randall Flynn. Don't know him. In a number of things, as a sort of slightly slimy, baddish guy. The whole steampunk take on the... I'm sure the costume and prop designers went absolutely ape. You know, like a, almost opened a branch of steampunk or else. It was a, a very good set design and a combination of the map painting to set the scene. And even down yeah. to the jumper parked in the field next to the building. Mm-hmm. It looked a big complex they were in. Yep. Yep, and the leading lady, she was um, previously in another guinea pig episode as well, SG-1 Season 6. I think the character would have learnt the first time. <laughs> a little bit early for an ultimate weapon in the series, but it does play a bigger role later on. I think it ties into the uh, introduction of Tritonin. Yes, that's it. Right, uh, I could definitely see parallels there. All that Earth tech, all the monitors, all the lab equipment, they must have one hell of a USB universal power adapter there. <laughs> To plug everything in, you wouldn't think it'd be compatible, but... I've never let that worry him. No. Actually, don't let me science get in the way of science fiction. Mm. <laughs> and the great little Geneva Convention reference from John. Yeah, if there's a wraith in the, in the Geneva Convention, he'd eat everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've got to be realistic about these things, don't you? And um, I'm putting a human in a room with a starving wraith. I keep on getting callbacks to Dashik Troopers seeing a cow and an arachnid in the same room. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. not as graphic. Well, no, there was a large censored uh, thing popped over that, if you recall. You saw plenty of blood. Yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff hit walls. <laughs> and the scene. Well, it's quite unusual. You know, it was an American film, and you didn't see as much violence, but you saw boobs, which is normally the other way around. Yeah. You know. <laughs> anyway, this episode got two nominations for Leo Awards, Dramatic Series Best Supporting Performance by a female, that was Alison Hossack, and Dramatic Series Best Supporting Performance by a Male, and that was Paul McGillian. Alas, they did not win. Uh, but a good episode. Probably deserved more votes. Maybe in a weaker season, it'd have got them. True. Yes. John gets the final line, making such a weapon as asking for trouble against the Wraith, and he says, next time we try and contact you, we don't expect you to be here, and they're not. <laughs> Indeed not. Come try ya! Okay, then, let's go to Underground. While Atlantis rations begin to dwindle, Dr. Ware concentrates on trading with other worlds for food. Shepard, McKay, Ford and Taylor undertake a trading mission with the Janai, a simple farming people. But beneath their crops, the Janai had both a secret defence system and their desire for war. Favourite lines, Gallaby McKay's, well, if you just keep your secret underground hatches locked. <laughs> Another good episode. Very high production value. They made the most of a location shoot. It looked mm-hmm. fantastic. The map painting, awesome. Excellent. Yep, very good, that one. The guest appearance by Cole Meany, fantastic. <laughs> Scenery chewing at its best. Yep, and of course, we had Erin Chambers. Absolutely delightful. Wonderfully nice to begin with, then wonderfully nasty <laughs> to finish with. <laughs> I still felt there was an Cyrus-like quality to that one. Maybe, yeah. Cyrus in red. <laughs> Absolutely no objections. I want to see her in a filmy right dress left from behind. <laughs> the episode was written by Peter DeLuise, directed by Brad Turner. It aired August the 27th, 2004. Didn't get any votes. Oh, shame. I think that's the anti-ginger process. Surely not. <laughs> Nobody would kick Karen Chambers out of the bed. <laughs> Just because she's a ginger. Did you see that picture of Karen Gillan today? No. And all her ears shaved off for a new movie. Oh, I heard about that. I follow, yeah. I follow her on Twitter. Looked at the picture thought, that's current. No, surely not. <laughs> yeah. Good to see Rodney's hoarding coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's only got um, so much, and I'm, it's mine, oh mine. Yeah. 
need it. I'm smarter than everyone. I need to stay awake. They're standing awfully close to the stump. They put the C4 on. No one seems to be worried about flying wood. <laughs> the shut up Rodney seems to keep on digging himself a deeper hole if he's what he's speaking about. I can build you a nuke. Yes, that's, that's not the best idea. Yeah, there's a point where Rodney really does fall pieces under interrogation, and then <laughs> they hit that certain <laughs> point in the conversation, and he goes on the offensive. Then he's fine. Once he loses his temper, he's fine. You know, he can stand up to anybody. But up until then, he just keeps saying the wrong thing, <laughs> or indeed anything. Yes. The sleeping hive is very spooky, and um, dumb idea to shoot that guy once he's woken up. But I love the the Rafe alarm sound effect, that whirling alarm. So it's very a creepy. On age, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that going off, you do panic. Mm. <laughs> it's hard not to. Which is sort of the idea, I think. Yeah. Rewatching the episode recently, I can't seem to find when Jumper Two and Three come to the planet, whether it before they go on the mission to the hive ship or afterwards and they just hang around waiting for a radio call. They were there all they, along. I hope they pack plenty of turkey sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> and they keep all of that poultry fresh. Indeed. Throughout the whole first season, the question of rations always brings up because, you know, they keep saying, oh, we, you know, we're doing trade deals for food with uh, other societies and whatnot, but they seem to have an awful lot of some important stuff and you think, you could not have brought that with you. Mm. We watched you as you came through in Rising. You were not carrying that much. <laughs> The mouths are surprisingly roomy. Just the simplest things like milk. We've got about 200 100 head of cows on our dairy farm and it gets you about 3,500 litres of milk every two days. So in a ground 20 cows, probably not going to have much spare milk apart from what they have themselves. It's probably good you don't have your, your cereal every morning. <laughs> Brad Mill, cast you... science correspondent. <laughs> you still use a bit of toffee and if they're drinking a bit of it, yeah, you cannot have a cappuccino. <laughs> Black coffee for everyone. <laughs> That's all right. Janeway and the Voyager would be quite happy. Mm, the coffee's not getting drunk. What's happened here? Yeah, everybody likes it white with sugar. Well, we ain't got any. It's on you lot. Yeah, actually, that's another thing, sugar. Yeah, well, that's, that's another big one, but I suppose the Russian packs would all have that in it, or the MREs. Yeah, probably somebody cornered the, the honey market as well. <laughs> I imagine there's something similar. There'd be a sugar cane crop somewhere. Yeah. Home. When Dr. McKay discovers a way to open a wormhole back to Earth, the team is overjoyed to learn they can return to Atlantis within a month, where the hyperdrive of the Prometheus is accidentally destroyed. So too are their hopes of returning to Atlantis. The old, we're home, and then, oh, wait, no, we're not. Nice appearance from the late Don S. Davis, though. Yes, it was good to see him return. And Garwin Sanford, of course. He of many characters in Stargate. And, of course, the voice of God, or equivalent. You lost me, the voice of God. The disembodied thing that they speak with towards the end of the episode, which is the reason they were given the yoke so they could just lie there and starve. Oh, right. Yes. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, then. Written by Joseph Mosey and Paul Mully, directed by Holly Dale, broadcast September the 10th, 2004. It got two votes. Clever episode, though. You know, a nice little twist on the, you know, as you say, we're home, but we're not. Mm. Interesting to see uh, Taylor experiencing shopping. Yes, it seems rather natural. She has a natural instinct to shop and shop and shop. <laughs> well, I'm not saying the Stargate team had a very specific idea what women should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't want to alienate a few female listeners. I think our female li- listeners would agree with me. Stargate is not a woman's show. Holly Dale, who directed this episode, done a lot of work 
but only did one episode of Stargate. Hmm. It was very much a boys' club. Oh, I gave this one one vote. The DHD moves around a lot in front of the gate when they're working on it. One minute's off to the side, then it's in front of it, then it's off to the side again. Um, yeah. We get some really good quotes from Rodney, this one. Bing, tittle, tittle, bong. And it's like looking at a cell culture through a microscope and seeing a hundred dancing hamsters. <laughs> <laughs> episode gives off SG-1 Series 2, or Season 2 episode, the Gamekeeper vibe. Mainly so for the virtual reality, I suppose. That's their explanation for the continuity errors with the DHD. You know, they're, they're saying that it's a clue, the fact that it's actually fake. And we also get Walter back. Walter. Nice to you. Interesting episode. Not a bad episode at all. Obviously works better if you don't know what's happening, so it loses a bit of its attraction on the rewatch. Hmm. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over the counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and Blackberry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by JewelBeat.com Oh, up next, The Storm. Part 1. Return of the Jedi. With a monstrous storm that only occurs once every 20 or 30 years bearing down on Atlantis, Shepard requests temporary refuge for the Atlanteans on Monara. Meanwhile, McKay and Zelenka hatch a plan to use electricity from the storm to raise Atlantis's protective force field. What can you say? Excellent episode. Yes. Good setup. Well, it felt very part one-y. I mean, they spent a lot of the episodes setting things up and getting things in place. We have what has to be our, a guy who's actually, in his own way, more scary than the Wraith. Hmm. You know? He's just unashamedly nasty. I think it's only four episodes we're getting for for the season, or the series, which is... A little low would have been good to see him come no, back a few more times. No, 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 you don't want to delude him. He's more effective if he's rare. I'd liken it to Orson Welles in The Third Man. You actually mm. identify so strongly with the character searching for Orson Welles' character. I was like, where the hell is he? I heard he's in this movie. And he was, I was waiting for an hour before he turned up. He's just a really nice bad guy, if mm. that's not an oxymoron. We are, of course, talking about Polya, played by Robert Davy. Mm-hmm. Erin Chambers is back. We get an appearance by Ryan Robbins, 
from Sanctuary playing Landon. And uh, Corey Monteith makes his appearance in Stargate. As we know, he recently passed away. I'm not trying to figure out who he is. <laughs> yeah, the Jedi, they're, um, they're holding nothing back in this episode. If you're in the way, you're going down. Yeah, we see how, how much influence they have on other worlds around them, creating alliances, and they're probably the biggest armed force in this part of the galaxy anyway. Yeah, they seem to be giving the codes out to anyone these days. That bloke, he's, uh, I'd say he's one step below a used car salesman. I wouldn't trust him at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would have thought, first thing, get an alpha site up and running and use that as your staging area for visiting mm. Atlantis. You brought up in the episode two, they had the same candles as in um, Underground with the Janai symbols on them, so they don't look too hard at the dining settings when they you had to be sharp, though, to spot that. I didn't spot it until I listened mm. to the commentary. <laughs> yeah, but they're sitting there eating. They should have seen it. Yeah, they look familiar. <laughs> Where'd you get even, them from? Even Taylor. <laughs> Taylor's been to the Janai homeworld before. Or... <laughs> <laughs> we also see uh, Shepard switching to military mode. Yeah, when Collier takes Rodney and we hostage. Good use of the gate to get rid of 55 of the men. A clever little idea. Like bugs on a windshield. Cheap CG team can emerge from the gate. Well, they do, just as, you know, scattered uh, molecules squish. The story was by Jill Bloatvogel, written by Martin Garrow and directed by Martin Wood. It's September the 17th, 2004. It was nominated for a Leo Award, Dramatic Series Best Overall Sound, and Dramatic Series Best Supporting Performance by Mail for David Nichol. Hmm. Only nominations, unfortunately. Part 1, The Storm, got two votes. Indeed. So let's jump straight to the eye. With Atlantis under the control of the Janai and the team scattered, Shepard must play a dangerous game of cat and mouse with the soldiers to save the remaining members of the Stargate team as the city faces imminent destruction. Shepard was under the impression... I think Shepard went completely off the reservation when he was under the impression that Collier had shot one of either uh, McKay or Weir. And did Shepard have special forces training? Damn! I mean, he, he's going around wacky. You can see little lights going out in the life science centre, and Shepard's just... <laughs> he's, he's like a Pac-Man eating dot. He did have an unfair advantage, didn't he, really? He had home field advantage, plus the scanner. Mm. And the Janai were not really trained in fighting anybody of comparable technical level. They'd never faced the Wraith. They'd never faced probably anybody else with comparable weapons. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. They only ever fought each other in that training so far. This is where McKay and Weir get very, very, very wet. <laughs> and cold. Yes, they did not heat the water. <laughs> we could heat the water, it's called acting, dear boy. Yeah, they were concerned about what the water could do to the cameras, though. I'm not the actors, you know. Like that scene from Blazing Saddles, you know. I won't say it, but if you've seen Blazing Saddles, you know what, you know what I mean. Now we get to see a good external shot of the city, or the shield. Big wave. A little last minute, wasn't it? The shield coming up as the wave sort of rolls in. <laughs> last minute? <laughs> last second. I mean, if the shield was generated from the top downwards, there'd have been real trouble. Mm. They were up near the top, they were grand. It does get some flooding from this episode, though, we see later on. And one or two other things. And the plan, Rodney's plan to use the lightning to charge it. I think it'd make a little bit more sense if the lightning could put a little bit of power back into the ZPMs. It doesn't have to fully charge them, but put a little bit in there. Well, that's not really how they work, is it? Yeah. The ZPM, you know, you think, oh, it's, it's like a battery, but mm-hmm. it isn't really. It creates a wormhole into an, another dimension and pulls mm-hmm. zero-point energy from it. 
a nice little bauble. It's an incredibly complicated piece of machinery. Mm. And the shiny. And yes. looks remarkably delicate, too. I think it'd break if you dropped it. Well, we, yeah, we see one shatter in home. Rodney knocks one off the table, and it, pretty much each one of those segments comes apart. That's kind of a clue to Rodney. It shouldn't shatter like that. Mm. Mm. You think if one of those breaks, and there's going to be a big explosion. Yep, you're getting well, maybe, maybe if off. it's empty, it, won't shatter. it will shatter. Maybe the intrinsic mm. energy field holds it together. It was glowing, though. It was also on their heads, too. It was all in his head. Yeah. <laughs> That's a bit worrying. If you think it will explode, then it will explode. <laughs> <laughs> It'll do. The Eye. Written by Martin Garrow, directed by Martin Wood. Broadcast November the 8th, 2004. And he got nine votes. Ooh. Combine it as a two-parter, it got 11. Mm. There were a few comments that the double episodes should have been treated as a single episode. It might have made a difference to how some people voted. I thought they were pretty much on par for each other. I didn't think there'd be that much of a swing between the two. Alan says, and in the commentary, they always says, you know, the first episode of a two-part sets a lot of the things up, mm. and he's normally not as fast-paced or as action-orientated. Yeah. Sorry, orientated is one of my pet hates, but continue. Oh, please, uh, correct my grammar, if you will. It just sets my teeth, and there's just nothing against you, Mike. Awards for The Eye. They won the Leo for Dramatic Series, Best Visual Effects. And they got nominated for a Gemini for Best Visual Effects and a Leo for Dramatic Series Best Picture Editing. Unusual combination, but at least it won an award. Woo! The Defiant One. Investigating the ancient weapons platform in space, Shepard and McKay discover the wreckage of a downed ray ship on a nearby planet. On the planet's surface, they learn the ship, transporting humans for food. What they don't know is that a single wraith has survived and has stayed alive by feeding off the cargo. Very, very dark episode for Stargate. Mm, yep. Surprisingly so. Didn't start out like it was going to... No. That's what I thought you were Hang on. Whoa, whoa, wait, what? Yeah, it was a nice little day trip. A couple of new characters, everybody mm. going along, you know, picnic on an alien world. Yeah, you know that's not going to end well. <laughs> Similar plot to Alien too, the single wraith hunting them in the ship. Surprising bravery shown by McKay, who's normally mm. a, sort of an abject coward... It kind of shocked him. Uh, was it Gale? Gal? Mm-hmm. Anyway, when one of the scientists actually, you know, did take his own life, cause he knew that McKay was going to stay with him, even mm-hmm. though he was needed elsewhere. And, well, really wasn't much point. You know, he'd aged 50-odd years in a matter of seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the uh, blowing up of the radio... You know what actually reminded me of? Um, do you remember, uh, oh, maybe the Jack Soul mate who blows up the Walking Dead guy with the grenade launcher? Yeah. I can't actually remember his name, which is going to... Burke. Burke. That wasn't me in an attempt to audio edit that into you saying Burke, by the way. <laughs> this episode sets the precedent for the wraith ability to hibernate for long periods of time which they later in the series. And they've spent a lot of money on the spider webs for this episode in the ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're a special machine just to make the spider webs. Yep. And we get a call back to the small glowing, I suppose you call them alien insect. Yeah, they look the same creatures. Obviously not, because they... Well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, it's a different galaxy, for Christ's sake. They're not <laughs> going to be the same, but... The special effect looks pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah but were they, were, they, were they zipping through things? No. Ah. These are the fondness for candy bars. Mm. Yes, well... This mission was originally intended to investigate the uh, defence satellite that they'd found in orbit. <laughs> yes, the satellite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeff brings up some good comments in the siege, so I'll leave mine till then. Written by Peter DeLuise, directed by Peter DeLuise, 
broadcast November 15th, 2004. The Defiant One got two votes. It got nominated for a Leo for Dramatic Series Best Direction for Peter. Also, Best Screenwriting. A decent episode. It was an excellent episode for McKay. We had uh, plenty of action, plenty of suspense. As we said, a few shocks. Took a, a turn that we weren't expecting halfway through. Indeed, no. When the Wraiths have played well, mm. they played well. And they were James Lafazanos. I think he played a Wraith about 15 times in the first season. Think about going through that, Michael. Yeah. That Wraith seemed to know a lot about ancient tech, too. Like, he's working away in the jumper. Although it looks like he's pulling a lot of things apart. Small line from him saying he was a scientist during the war or something would have been understandable, especially considering he pads the shield to his armband, which then explodes. So it's not really explained how they get the jumper back. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he was that old, he was active during the war, he wasn't just a run-of-the-mill crew member of that cruiser. Mm-hmm. It implies a lot rather than comes right out and, and say who and what he was. It probably tortured plenty of people for information. Well, you could also argue that given the uh, Wraith's psychic connection, they could possibly share information mentally. I was going to say it's a hive mind, isn't it? That have sort of maybe not genetic memory, but memory from other Wraith. Indeed. Hot Zone. When members of the team show signs of an unusual infection, it is discovered to be caused by a nanite virus, which induces hallucinations and then death due to brain hemorrhage. Can the deadly technology be stopped before it cuts down the entire city? Would you say bottle episode? You can argue that any episode that's based in the city is a bottle episode. Hmm. We see heavy on the psychology analysis of how people react differently under pressure. Mm. Especially potentially fatal pressure. Yes, it's not a, not the best way to go out. Yeah, we get some good character interaction between John and Taylor as they spar. Also a fantastic-looking scene. Rachel herself actually did all the training for the combat, and it shows. It's always better when you don't have to have a stunt woman doing it. Mm-hmm. It just looks more natural. So I wonder if they didn't show John anything just to make it the fact him getting his ass kicked <laughs> looks a bit better. <laughs> so we're going to show her how to fight you, but you're just going to sit there and take it. Do your best. <laughs> It seems a bit cruel. <laughs> well, I suppose he was learning that form of fighting. You know, if she drops the sticks and goes for, you know, MMA or something, then John may have the edge. <laughs> of course, we also get the conflict between John and Weir, the two military and the civilian ideas of that's under quarantine. As it turns out, Weir has the slight edge in decision-making. Not a brilliant episode. It, it was okay. I suppose they went a little bit for the, you know, for the horror and the psychological horror I don't think it really worked very well. Another one to set up a couple of things, like we get the mention of Rodney's sister and the, the virus itself. They say at the end it was neither Rafe or Ancient. They don't return to that, unfortunately. Well, they do, but it takes a couple of years. <laughs> by then, you forgot all about it. Mm. <laughs> Written by Martin Gero, directed by Mario Azapardi. Broadcast November 22nd, 2004. I'm using the uh, USA days just to avoid any confusion. Mm. By now, the UK is getting the global first-run rights. MGM are allowed to sell this product overseas, and it's up to Sci-Fi Channel to broadcast it first, and if they don't, well, sod them. <laughs> Hot Zone got four votes. Mm. Mm. Well, that's another episode where we get to see Rodney have to deal with his own mortality. Yes, more directly than previously. Someone's pointing a gun at me, so like, arg, arg, oh, it's gone, okay. Whereas this yeah. has actually had time to think about it. Come try ya! Next up, Sanctuary. 
The Atlantis team visits a pre-technological paradise and requests that they be allowed to bring refugees of wraith attacks there for sanctuary. The locals refuse, believing that the goddess Athar has restricted their plan for colonization by outsiders. When Shepard invites Athar's priestess back to Atlantis, is he inviting trouble into their midst? He just wants to get his end away. Yeah, if that's trouble, then bring it on. Hmm. Give me time. I'm about two months. <laughs> I like this episode. Mm. It was a, a nice mythology based episode, drawing back on the ancients. Explains a lot, you know, most of which has been covered by SU-1, mm-hmm. various forms. Leonor Varela, who played Shea, excellent actress for this role. We get plenty of perk references from McKay. <laughs> <laughs> right from the word go, he's suspicious of her, right down to uh, Nina, after she activates one of the control consoles. Mm. Oops, how did that happen? A live sensor and long-range sensor, just what they needed. Mm. Yeah, the arm don't seem to go up when she activates it. They should have realised that she's either an ancient or has the gene fairly strongly. Yeah, when she has a medical, you know, Carl says, you know, she's perfect. Yeah. Too perfect. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah. Even when Rodney realises she's ancient, he doesn't let up. He keeps on... Sort of uh, easy on the eye as well. Yes. Very happily stare at her for the 42 minutes. Although we do get some bad CG lightning with the weapon firing at the start of the episode, and it doesn't seem to be a very direct weapon. If it's a weapon at all, it's probably just her. Probably just her. They can do all sorts of shiny things. Apparently they're allowed to do all sorts of shiny things within well, the strict confines. They do redeem themselves firefight at the end when Shepard goes <laughs> goes to her rescue. How quaint. Yes. <laughs> with, one ju- with one jumper and a couple of drones. Yes. It was good to see Rodney mocking the local, local people. <laughs> it was funny stuff. Oh. <laughs> Not very polite if you're visiting another people to uh, mock the traditions, the faith, the way of life, everything pretty much. Rodney is not known for his politeness. That's true. Yeah, as you said, John gets to be Kirk again, and it was a great shot of the Rafe descending on the planet towards the end there. We didn't actually get to see John with the short off. <laughs> That's classic Kirk. The episode was written by Alan Brenner, directed by James Head, broadcast November the 29th, 2004. It got two votes. You only got two votes, our survey said. Before I sleep. The Atlantis team discover a stasis chamber holding a woman who appears to be over 10,000 years old. Excited at the possibility that she is one of the alien race that built Atlantis, the team decides to bring her out of stasis despite the risks to her health. Everyone is shocked when, once reanimated, the elder woman identifies herself as none other than Dr. Weir. I wonder... Did they get a lot of critics? Well, why did the city do that? How did they do that? How was that set up? And, you know, sort of uh, people on the forums are going, this makes no sense. So, right, here, this explains everything. Yes, no? Who knows? I'm just postulating. Well, someone did say, what a stunning coincidence, everything was set up for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Almost perfectly. And maybe they anticipate what the internet is like and went, <laughs> right, we're going to nip this one up the board. <laughs> We've had seven years of SG1. We know what's coming. <laughs> Excellent episode. Mm-hmm. Very clever Ancients, Time Machines, Wraith, the Ancients, the Atlanteans, biggest dicks in this galaxy. I think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great to see them highly advanced. They have a, a society that's thousands of years ahead of ours. Technology the likes of which we can only imagine. Yet when it gets right down to it, they're just like us. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the arrogance is there. Yep. You get representations of uh, one one woman. She seems compassionate, but you know, realistic. We can't help you. You can't use it. Another one, you'll definitely... You are not allowed to use it, period. Another one. Yeah, let's use it even more. <laughs> I can build another one. You know, it's a, just a very good episode all around. Very clever way to link it back to Rising. And when you see all you know, all the main characters are dying, especially Rodney, yeah. back then, 
keep everything running as long as I can. You know, make your escape. Yeah. But it's too late for me. <laughs> I heard around Rodney saying that. Yeah, very good to see the gate room flooding and destruction of the base. NSG1, when they self-destruct, always get that fade to white. Timer gets stopped at four seconds, so you never really see the base go. Whereas here, you see the, the gate room's flooding, the jumper bay's flooding. Still haven't got 100% of the water CG right. Get the idea, anyway. It would have been really fun to see the SGC flooding like that. You know, like that with Watergate. Pity they didn't hook up to that water on it. Have a mad dash up through the levels as the water rises. Pull the switch and the whole thing cut off. And they're blast doors, not watertight. <laughs> Five foot thick door, I think it looks pretty watertight. There's a reference from McKay saying when they're searching for another cryo room in Atlantis, we've had the mention before that Atlantis is about the same size as Manhattan, which is quite large. It might <laughs> it be just a <laughs> Yeah. A couple of miles wide, like pretty big. Not as built up as Manhattan, you know, there's a lot of mm. it. Mm, true. Yeah, been in, they've time-travelled back five minutes before the ancients are leaving. And probably the biggest problem with the episode is ancient transport ships coming in. We have the Wraith siege in the city, but we just see glowing dots on a screen. <laughs> yeah. Well, as we know, uh, Stargate operates under a reasonably tight budget. You know, if mm. they want CGI, then they want to get the money from somewhere else. Fortunately, with some of the episodes coming up and some of the ones just gone, that budget would have been straight even now. As you say, you know, getting water right, CGI water, is incredibly difficult. Until finding Nemo came on. Well, that didn't look real. Mm-hmm. That was CGI, but it was cartoon. It was very definitely a cartoon. It wasn't photorealistic CGI, was it, really? No, yeah, I suppose not. A few notable guest stars in this. Gildart Jackson, who played Janus. He of the uh, Time Machine. And useful in uh, SG-1. We've also got a little cameo by Robert Patrick. And cameo as in, we used his footage again. And Holly Dignard, who played old Elizabeth Weir. Mm. Some good makeup work. To, uh, mm-hmm. Written by Carl Binder, directed by Andy Makita. Broadcast December the 6th, 2004. It got eight votes. Mm. And it got nominated for a Gemini Award for Best Achievement in Makeup. Leia Hartman and Todd Masters, who were the makeup guys. Oh, they did do a good job. I'd like to know what won the award. <laughs> Sparkly vampire? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, just one more. The arrogance of the ancients. When the transport ships are coming back, they seem to think that they can run the Wraith blockade. Like, why don't they just gate back to Atlantis? Sure, they come from a planet with a gate on it. Seems a loss of life for no reason. Yeah, they, I mean, they could destroy the ships. Reasonably easy, you know. Overload the power cores if they didn't want to make sure they can't get hold of their technology. They leave enough of it lying around. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, 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 ancients, litterers of the galaxy. The Flesh Pulp Podcast. Three to ten minutes of fiction brought to you thrice weekly. Two hundred miles below the surface of the Earth. At the terminus of a series of long sealed caverns and interconnected shrines. Under the shadow of the eternally bleeding eye. There is a crippled wreck of a man writing tales. Stories of a dimension engulfed in madness. He is writing them of you. Think them all at fleshpulp.com or search for it on iTunes. The Brotherhood. The Atlantis travels to Degan. 
planet populated by people whose ancestors once worshipped the ZPM as a religious symbol. Even as the team searches for keys to its whereabouts, the Janai have learned of their activities and they gan and planted a sleeper agent amongst them. Now, with the Atlantis team closing in the location of the ZPM, the Janai close in on them. Now, it's lingering memory of this episode is your description of the shot from supposedly In the Hole, which was actually the studio and a bit of blue cloth. Yeah, wonderfully done on a budget. In fact, if you're watching it in HD on a big screen, you can actually see the texture in the cloth above Collier's head. (laughs) (laughs) Commander Costas Collier returns, Mm. hell-bent on revenge, got his bullet hole in his shoulder. We also get Laura Minnelli playing Sinear, she of Alphas, and the first appearance of Chuck. Yes, Chuck the Technician. (laughs) Played by Chuck Campbell. It's Charles Bratowski. Good little scavenger hunt episode. Yeah, kind of a low-budget Indiana Jones. Mm. Yes. It's always good to have Collier. Once again, uh, he pretty much has John beat right until the last <laughs> scene. When I first seen this one, I actually thought he was going to kill Ford. Would have made him a little bit more threatening, I suppose. Ford was protected by the power of the contract. Hmm. Venerable tradition in science fiction. <laughs> I got three more episodes, you can't kill me yet. The B plot for the episode is the approach of a wraith dart. Oh, oh yeah. This is we have long range sensors. Dumb. With long range sensors. But the puddle jumpers don't have long-range sensors since they need to remain less than three feet apart. In direct path. No dodge and weave. God, where did you get your pilot lessons? You didn't deserve to live any longer. We've seen the drones can <laughs> track pretty much anything. Hardly manoeuvrable. You don't even have to be close to your target. You can fire in the opposite direction and the drone will know where it wants to go. <laughs> mm. But I suppose it does ramp up the tension a bit, you know, as the, the dark heads towards Atlantis, what will it do? Is, is it on a suicide mission? And then it starts scanning everything and panic, panic. And then it blows up. Yes. Well, not before it blows someone else up. Destroys the first jumper so you know that they're not going to be able to destroy it. It's going to get there and do what it come to do. Yeah, because they're dumb. It was good visuals, good over the city dog, even though it was one-sided. <laughs> yeah. Not much of a dog fight. It was just kind of just chasing him. Yeah. Mm. They know that three Wraith Hive ships are approaching the city and they'll be here in, a, I think, a couple of weeks. Countdown to the the finale already. Ticking clock. Yeah, so they really do need that ZPM. And they get it for a bit. Yeah, in 15 <laughs> seconds or so. McKay kind of screws it up. Yeah, Rodney's expression on the, uh, you know, yeah, we're taking off, you know, is like, oh. Yeah, I thought you liked me. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the earlier scenes between Rodney and the Priceless um, and asking <laughs> John for advice whether we should follow it a bit or... <laughs> yeah. John's just like, oh, bless, you know, just sort of tap him gently on the shoulder and go, you know, if you can't figure that much out. (laughs) (laughs) Taylor's got a big smile on her face the whole time. Yeah. The episode got nominated for a Gemini for Best Writing in the Dramatic Series for Martin Garrow. Just a nomination. They got confused, you know, they thought they were nominated for a Gemini, not a Gemini. Uh, Written by Martin Garrow, directed by Martin Wood, aired January the 3rd, 2005. Zero votes. Oh, uh, we get a good little trial and error scene um, straight out of the last crusade, with the and we get the biggest hero flaw ever: don't leave an enemy alive to return later. Yeah, just shoot him off camera. Yep. Okay, camera's off, right? Bang. <laughs> I always call you, and forwards like, oh, I shot him about ten minutes ago. Yes, and again, Rodney talking too much, which leads to the double cross we don't see coming. He seems awfully dumb. The lure of an attractive woman seems danger. Just seems to really should have stopped after the first sentence. Letters from Pegasus. Having learned that the entire Wraith Armada is headed towards the city, the team decides to use our remaining power to send Stargate Command a message containing information about the Wraith threat and the well-being of everyone in Atlantis. 
As most of the team are recording messages to their loved ones, Shepard and Taylor embark on a mission that takes them directly to the Wraith Army. The entire Wraith Armada? The entire Wraith Armada? Really? Well, three hardships, probably a dozen cruisers, and a thousand doors. Mm-hmm. That's an armada. He does like to a battle flight carrier group, I should say. I voted for this one. Uh, so did I. <laughs> a lot of people did <laughs> <with> it. <laughs> Yeah, it's an absolutely cracking episode, which was part clip show, but mostly original work. And all mm. Zelenka. Well, yeah, Zelenka's is actually... You don't <laughs> need to speak, Jack. You can just, you know, you know that boom, there's a Stargate. Mm. They didn't even need to show the clips, like, just the yeah. hand gestures and what he, you know he was talking yeah. about, the city rising. and Passion in his yeah. voice and the awe and all about it, you know, it, it was beautiful. Well, was it Kavanaugh actually asking? You're not telling him anything, uh, secret? secret? Uh, Ford, no. behind, Ford behind the camera. Yeah. Secrets? Yeah. No. <laughs> and we, of course, we get Carson sending a message to his dear old mom. <laughs> the foot fungus. <laughs> and, and of course, McKay's 15,000 attempts to actually record a message. Yeah. Leadership. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he redeemed himself again. He always does, you know, right at the end. Family, that's what's important. Kavanaugh definitely getting Dick of the Year award. Yep. <laughs> you know, these are, they are following our detail of the mistakes. Ford eventually goes, you know what? You just go, let me know when you're finished. I've made note. <laughs> Ford just walks off before probably shoots him. Mm. The reason I voted for it is it in a, in a strong season is my favourite episode. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, even bright in memory. Yeah, now they do do clip shows well. Yeah, we get interesting scenes between Taylor and John. Again, the cold, hard facts and military decisions against emotional decisions. Of course, the Ray kind of forced John's hand into landing and cloaking. The uh, ongoing sexual tension between uh, Taylor and John. Well, of course. And Amanda Tapping makes a short appearance in this episode. And Rodney. Rodney says the candle's still burning in his video. It was good to see. <laughs> you never, we never really clarified if she actually watched that. Well, it was brought up by Robert Cooper. None of the videos actually got to be seen by the ones, especially the civilian ones anyway. Mm. Videos would have been delivered because they didn't die for one. So they're locked no, up in no, the SPC somewhere. Know that. <laughs> you know, that hasn't been established at this point in time. Well, I think if one of the show creators says they didn't get seen, they didn't get seen. No, I meant they're not dying, but... Oh, right, OK. <laughs> oh, it's good, Rodney's... Not all of them, anyway. <laughs> Rodney's little power problem idea. Nice little idea, and it's good to see they're going to try and get as much info as they can about Pegasus back to Earth. Yeah, good visuals, the high fleet, that blue light. Yeah, one of the mysteries. Mm. And John's video about Colonel Sumner's death to the family. Um, it was a good little pull back to the pilot. Yeah. And then you get Weir, of course, getting dressed up all official and kind of giving the, well, pretty much personal death notices. Because mm-hmm. they've gone through quite a few people, it has to be said. Between brains boiling, mm. idiot piloting. Yeah, and everyone's saying goodbye at the end. It's very heartfelt. Letters from Pegasus was written by Carl Binder, directed by Mario Azapardi, broadcast January the 10th, 2005, and got eight votes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, we, yeah, we get Walter back and he's on shift. And Carter just happens to be in the control room at the same time. Uncanny, isn't it, really? Mm. What happened last time Walter did the night shift? The gate got stolen. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be supervised. Yeah, Carter can stay with you to make sure nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, Jack's probably gone fishing. Tilk's probably uh, gone doing his Jaffa thing. Mm. And Daniel's probably asleep somewhere. Yep. yep. And just a call back to the actual podcast for this episode, Jeff made the comment. Would a Rafe get intoxicated if he fed on a drunk guy? <laughs> Good little thing to see one day, I suppose. They do the clip shows well. Come try ya! The gift. 
When terrifying nightmares about the Wraith haunt Taylor, she visits the city psychologist and learns that she can sense the Wraith. Determined to discover more, she leads a small team in a mission to a planet from which victims of the Wraith miraculously return. There, they uncover what appears to be a genetic laboratory. Could Taylor's connection to the Wraith be the result of genetic experimentation? I have to admit, because Mike was hinting vaguely at it through the episode, I thought the psychiatrist was actually a figment of uh, Taylor's imagination, because for most of the episode, nobody actually addresses her directly. So I became convinced that Taylor was imagining the psychiatrist. <laughs> what do you think Rodney had been doing in that room then? Boring <laughs> Phil. Uh, <laughs> this is my private place. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. <laughs> get to say John finally get the upper hand and kick Taylor's ass in this one. He figures something's wrong because he shouldn't really be doing that. And if mm. he hasn't been getting his sleep for the last three days and having some uh, really uh, wild and wacky nightmares... And credit to the makeup department, you know, the close-up work that you can get to in the Wraith. And Taylor made up as a Wraith. Beautiful. Yes, unfortunately, I don't keep the same design for a later episode, which is a pity because this makeup for her being a Wraith was definitely better than the later one. The Queens do look a bit different. It's almost as if she was kind of a standard run-of-the-mill Wraith at that point, not a female. <laughs> Should have had a goatee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah, would have been interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> no sexual difference between the others yeah. just the coins because that's what's hinted at you know you've got the queen that you know the uh, ruler of the hive and then everybody else like an, an ant colony mm, it's a male yeah and the gift not your favorite episode though is it no i didn't vote for this one i don't mind it i mean i've watched it quite a bit over the last mm. last month obviously but i actually don't don't mind it at all i think it's got enough character interaction a little bit of, you know actual physical action taylor gets to push herself physically and Acting-wise, get the introduction of player ranking as to Kate Heitmeyer. Yum. <laughs> Yum, yep. I was going to say the psychiatrist is cute, but I think uh, my feelings about the psychiatrist are summed up in that single word. <laughs> Put it to this way, I ponder putting her on my list. Right. Yeah, it seems like she should have been introduced earlier on in Hot Zone. Yeah. And having the mental problems. Nice to see a counsellor, psychiatrist, who seems to actually be doing the work he's there for. Mm. As opposed to being available tatty. <laughs> Yes, I'm on the command deck in this wonderfully tight leotard. <laughs> wonderfully leotard, remarkably locals. <laughs> Who was it that told us to wear a uniform? No other but Senator Kenzie. <laughs> Similar to a couple of the other low-point episodes of this first season, with Taylor being able to communicate with the Wraith, sense the Wraith, and again, the ancients created the Wraith, and it's the age-old trope of creators being wiped out by their creations. We've seen it before in SG-1, and we're going to see it again later. It underlines the point of them being ridiculously arrogant. Mm. They think they can do pretty much everything, and they're just as mind gone blank. Just as flawed as we are. Yep. It's a Taylor episode. She needed it. Rachel needed it. Mm-hmm. Same as we're. You know, she doesn't get much to do, but when they give her something to do, give her a good writing, they perform. Mm. And that's one of the tragedies of Atlantis. Mainly Rachel and Tori don't get enough to do. And Tori needs to have a series of questions in the wardrobe. <laughs> Story was by Robert C. Cooper and Martin Garrow, written by Robert C. Cooper and directed by Peter DeLuise, broadcast January the 17th, 2005, and he got a single vote. It wasn't Brad. <laughs> Come try ya! The Siege, part one. Yes. With the Wraith Amada closing in on Atlantis, tension builds between Taylor and some of the other members of the team over a connection to the Wraith. When she's accused of revealing the team's location after a scouting mission ends in a firefight, Shepard steps in to defend her. But even he begins to harbour doubts when her accuser is left unconscious after an attack by an unknown assailant. It's interesting that a Wraith would choose to beat the crap. I can only assume that the Wraith 
beat seven shades of shit out of your man to throw suspicion on Taylor. Yeah, he, he couldn't feed. That had to give him away. Mm. A physical beating wouldn't be traced back to him. Although she should have damage to her hands, knuckles, even from a couple of punches. You sort of, it's easy to damage yourself. He had broken ribs and everything else, like they said. Yes, he really did a number on him. So mm. much so, uh, I don't think we, we see Sergeant Bates again. We do, but he's been... Do we? Yeah, okay. it's not really a spoiler. Back on Earth, was it? He gets sent back to Earth when the worms yeah. are shipped out at the end of the next episode. Right. And he makes one more appearance in season... End of season two, I think. He comes back for one of the Earth episodes. We'll get there. Yeah. What can you say about Siege Part 1? The first part of a trilogy of episodes. Absolutely fantastic episode. Everything you could want. Humour, yeah. action, little... Oh, no, no. Oh! <laughs> Poor old Grodin. Mm, yes, we share the same arrogance as the ones that come before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's only three hive ships. We can take them. Nothing to worry about. Mm. Keep working on the compression algorithm. Yep. <laughs> well, we compress slightly into the tiny bits. <laughs> yeah, so that's that a lot. Jeff describes it well as being every bit of Russian construction smashed together, but there's a little bit of Seattle Space Needle there, and I'm pretty sure you can see part of the Prometheus sticking out of the side of it as well. They just went back to the old clip art folder and grabbed everything <laughs> they could. <laughs> really redundant that it only fires in one direction. It's in space, it's not, not on the surface, so you really want to be able to fire more than one place. Yeah, I mean, it's an energy-based, directional energy weapon. It seems a bit ridiculous to have it built like cannon. Mm. And it didn't look like the satellite was manoeuvrable. No, and it seemed to be covered in a dozen lightning rods when there's no lightning in space. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the plan would have worked if the jury rigging they did to get the power flowing would have held up. Mm. Unfortunately, Grodin stayed on board. Right. And it's dark. Rodney was in the red spacesuit. They were all in red. If you're going to go and activate an H satellite, don't be all wearing red while you're doing it. I mean, we said in the episode, there's three people wearing red, and mm. one of them we've never seen before. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to die? It wasn't him. No, surprising. Yeah. Grodin was enough of a... Well, it had only been about three or four episodes, but it was enough of a case for you to say, not Grodin, not Peter. Mm. And he apologises <laughs> yeah. seconds before he gets blown to bits. Yep. Good job he left that message to whoever. <laughs> <laughs> he was alive when yeah. he made the message and died a day later. <laughs> Nobody else did. Or maybe his uh, message was delivered. Yeah, might have got there. It seems odd that it took 60 seconds for the weapon to charge up, probably because they're using a Dakota generator and not the original power source, and the fact that they had the, the satellite shot in, I suppose you could let that one slide. Maybe. No. Mm. All Rodney's dialogue on the satellite was great, too. He charged at the speed of plot. Yes. Rodney doing his little uh, walking in space routine, <laughs> the gravity coming on. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's always fun. Soon it will come on more slowly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's fine. You were standing there. You were actually on a... Flat, flat panel when you switched it on. The only thing that would have made this episode better would have been the dinosaur. Mm-hmm. If it stuck its head through the gate, it would have been really good. Especially then you could shut the gate off and you have a joint dinosaur head. You know, there's your food <laughs> problem solved. <laughs> One more thing with the satellite, the interior, ancient interior, um, and we see it a lot more further on in the series. The set designer's done a really good job. A little time and budget they would have had because a lot of it would have went to CG in these last two episodes. Actually, we, we should have said Kavanaugh to the T-Rex. <laughs> Yeah, well, we get we get Kavanaugh returned in the briefing room scene at start with all the laptops and everything. I think by this stage, Wi-Fi would have been pretty available and in use. They had cords going everywhere. Wouldn't it surprise you that uh, all the member nations sent their own hardware and it, nobody was using the same standard. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, even the PowerPoints, I suppose. 
Some people were using Linux, <laughs> people were using Windows, some people were using Mac. Mm. <laughs> and Radic's little display of the city blowing up, like they got four MacWater generators at their disposable to overload. As you said in the episode, Mike, it sort of should vaporize, it shouldn't just split city apart. You would have thought so. We, we've seen a generator go off in, in atmosphere, and it was mm. a big bang. Yes. Mm. It took out one of Amanda's doomed lovers. Mm, yes, and he said that it's a it's a spacecraft, not just a city. Well, when it's in space, it's got the shield around it, so it won't make it much much stronger. Yeah, the Atlanteans put a lot of faith in the energy-based shields to keep things safe. Mm. That's one of the reasons they can build for aesthetics rather than pure strength. Mm. But I suppose it does explain why in the pilot we see shields firing in the different sections of the city flood. It should be explosive decompression when... Suddenly there's atmosphere and next minute there's not, but the city doesn't get torn apart then, so I suppose they might just need a bigger boom. <laughs> no boom today. Boom tomorrow. There's always a boom tomorrow. Move the generators to more important parts. Put one in the control tower, put one in the where the hyperdrive is, and you're going to know they get droid. Well, I think one thing they did say is that the main database, huge amounts of redundancy, so mm. it's probably every building is probably the database backed up. Yeah, it'd be spread far and wide. Yeah. Just point the backup at dev null zero. Doesn't take that long. I hit on that when they say they can only get seven to eight cents, so it must be very big. Makes you wonder how big the database actually is. Well, the whole sum of the ancient knowledge, I suspect. Mm. You know, you wouldn't want to take a trip to Pegasus, <laughs> not take every crap of knowledge you've got just in case. Mm. Ooh, a roll of thunder. Lovely. This episode was written by Martin Garrow, directed by Martin Wood, broadcast January the 24th, 2005, and it got... Two votes. Come try ya! The Siege Part 2. As the Wraith attack on Atlantis begins, the team is bolstered by the appearance of reinforcements from Earth armed with nuclear warheads and good news. The battleship Daedalus is due to arrive in four days. When the warheads are easily destroyed by the Wraith, it becomes increasingly clear reinforcements aren't enough to protect the city for four hours, let alone four days. I have no idea why I went with that. <laughs> I have no idea either. <laughs> There were times I thought it's a bit Scottish, then it's a bit Irish. And... Skyrish. Yeah. The season finale. We have a few uh, visitors in the form of Colonel Dylan Everett, played by Clayton Landy. A guy who's actually, in my book, competing with Kavanagh for Dick of the Year. He was meant to be, um, he was going to be a recurring character in season two, but they ended up bringing in Stephen Colmwell to take that role on. So I won't go into any more detail on that, because it might give away something for season, season yes, two. But... bad, bad. Yeah. <laughs> they bring a lot of toys with them. Most notably the uh, nuclear weapons, uh, rail guns, 50 cows, lots of bullets. Base mines. Well, they were the nukes, weren't they? Mm, the Mark II generators. Yeah. Again, oh, the Wraith, these highly advanced alien species. They won't be able to detect these mines. They've got <laughs> anti-radar coating. Stupid <laughs> idiots. I have to say, it's unfortunate that, from the looks of things, he's not going to be around to learn the lesson of his idiocy. <laughs> Uh, the people back at uh, Stargate Command who probably uh, rubber-stamped this mission, though, they were still around. Mm. It's just common sense to assume that a space-faring culture doesn't rely on something so primitive as radar. Probably got better sensors and scanners. Well, they would have to avoid droids and everything else, so you'd think they'd pick up something, especially when they've been to Atlantis Space Force, so they'd pick up these extra things. Well, no, I mean, it's not even to set them off. I mean, for a start-off, there's no harm in that as in a fling-load of asteroids at them. Even if they didn't have base mines, it's still a good idea. Well, a big enough asteroid gets through smack anywhere on the planet, and within a day you've got cloud cover, that probably electromagnetic radiation, all sorts of stuff that really triples Atlantis. Mm. 
if the asteroid doesn't actually hit it. Yeah. It would be bad. Unleash. The idea of the space mines themselves, it's not a bad idea. It's just, why wouldn't they be remote activated or something? We closed the episode on the uh, of uh, John's potentially noble sacrifice. Mm. Yeah, after they can't get the remote control to work. Put <laughs> <laughs> well, new batteries in. Again, it's a good little idea, but they never touch on that again either. Let's talk about the battle. The whole city, every balcony's got rail guns and 50 mm. cows. Mm-hmm. When it opens up, you see the money being spent. Ching, ching. Each 50 millimeter gel costs $6. Yeah. And they fired thousands of them inside a studio. When the guns were firing, you could hear them. Yeah, that's a lot of percussion. Yeah, two buildings away. And you think, hang on a minute, that building's ironproof. Yeah, it's ironproof, but you can feel it shaking. Just imagine the studio tour that day when they were filming. You'd, be, you'd have people running. Yeah. Would you go and complain, though? <laughs> keep it down, please. Uh, pardon? No, okay. no, don't mind. Don't mind me. Good luck, uh, cat. And as I pointed out, Mythbuster did a uh, thing on the effect of water on bullets, and they found the larger the caliber. They persuaded someone with a, fifth, with a swimming pool to let them fire a 50 cal. <laughs> And the guy was like six foot under the water, and it just literally, he said, the hit in the ballistic gel was like a ping pong ball. Yeah, yep. an inside pull with that, yeah. and the recoil flash hit the roof. <laughs> but I think it was more muzzle velocity. The higher muzzle velocity, the bullet shatters on impact with the water. Smaller rifles like the M16 that got further because they had smaller, hit the water at a slower speed. So we get a full on firefight. Ford, well, to be honest, Ford takes his whole Colonel Everett situation to heart. He becomes a serious brown noser. Yeah. You know, when that gun team gets zapped up by one of the darts, you know, he's running along. Mm. I'll man it, Colonel. I'll man it. Yep. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. You can gather <laughs> on me. And unfortunately, the Colonel finally realises what he's up against when he meets a Wraith face-to-face, mm-hmm. empties the clip into him, and get hit over the head for his trouble. Yep. Brought up in the episode about the Maroons wearing the red berets. Um, I know here with the Australian Army, the transport, the aviation... And the SAS wear the beret more so because of confined space. Wearing a slouch hat in a cabin of a vehicle or an aircraft, it's going to get blown off parades and that, so that's why, proof that's why we wear the beret over here. But it was odd that they didn't have any signia or anything on them. Well, they mightn't have got permission. True. It was probably easier not to bother with any form of patchwork and just say they're a special arm of the SGC and be done mm-hmm. with it. Black up. They did look smart. Mm. Oh, let's not forget that Weir went to the Janai. Strikes me as really, really dumb. Well, they did a deal. They got to partially assemble nuclear weapons that Rodney and Zelenka had to put together again while <laughs> under heavy drug use. Mm. Yeah. Drug Rodney is scary. <laughs> what about 30 seconds rest between building nuclear weapons, building remote controls, putting together nuclear generators? Trying to get the chair to work. Yep. And he does have one good line. Saying they come in here with their brush cuts. <laughs> they <now> go to <laughs> yeah. A graphic example of McKay sticking up for himself under certain conditions, like when he was face to face with Collier. Mm. And we also see the return of the Lantis Blade Room, which I'm pretty sure is the last time we see it again. The holographic room. We see it in SG1. Ah, yes, we do too. One notable guest in this episode was James Bamford, who was the stunt coordinator for the show. He's currently working on The Arrow, so if you're impressed with the stunt work there, that's James Bam Bam Bamford. He was fighting Taylor. So this is James Bamford, not Jamie Bamford. Bamba, that's... Ah, right. Okay, then. What can you say about this episode? Absolutely cracking finale. Lots of shiny special effects and big explosions. Big green, 5.1 sound system, Blu-ray, you're away. Yep. Yeah, I'll pass on the Blu-ray. I only have so much storage space over there. I'm not going to buy the Blu-ray. I thought you'd already owned it. 
Not of Atlantis, no. I own Atlantis on DVD. But you bought the Blu-ray. Oh, that was Fargate, wasn't it? <laughs> the Seas Part 2. Written by Joseph Malozzi, Paul Mully, directed by Martin Wood. Aired January the 31st, 2005. It got, got to put a drum roll in here somewhere, 19 votes. Hey! <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so for a long while, this voting for the favourite episode of season one was pretty close. But in the end, it were one runaway winner. Did you roll for it ten times? Good question, Alan. <laughs> I was talking to both of you. Right. No, if I was going to vote ten times, I'd vote for Letters from Pegasus. That would have won. The same with Rising and sort of come down to which one's the better out of the two. The second one we do get the battles over the city. I wish they'd damaged the map painting after the second battle a bit more, though. Because you know they're going to hit the reset switch at the end of the trilogy, so show a peep, half-flooded or something. Yeah. Make the city look damaged instead of a little bit of black smoke here and some smoke there. Oh, yeah, oh, torrential rain. Summer's over. No, that's out of a proper British summer. <laughs> okay, then we'll do a quick summary of the voting. We got 79 votes for the poll. Mm. The winner, The Siege Part 2 with 19. Second place, The Eye with 9 votes. Joint third, Before I Sleep, 38 minutes and Letters from Pegasus. And Rising coming in fourth place. Pretty impressive. It was a strong first season. Tell its weak episode, every first season does. Overall, that was a good first season. Yep, and as weak as some of the episodes were, they do include little plot threads and that we see come back later, so they're good little set-up episodes anyway. And weak as they were, they weren't as weak as some of the SG-1 season 1 episodes. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I think the writers, the writers had learnt the mistake from that. Formula was there and they knew they knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Right. My recording's approaching two and a half hours. Are we going to wrap? Yes, we can wrap up. Okay then, folks, I hope you enjoyed our uh, Stargate Atlantis Season 1 wrap-up show. If you can hear noise in the background, that's the uh, storm I'm recording in the middle of. My shields are up, so I have nothing to worry about. <laughs> it's a shame that didn't happen while we were talking about the storm. <laughs> we had that little brief occasion when I was in the middle of a storm and the power went about three times in the space of <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> didn't we abandon at that point? I think we did, <laughs> eventually. Thank you very much, everybody that voted. It wasn't the highest number of votes we've had. Uh, that will go to SG1 wrap-up show. Take care, everybody. I hope you join us. I'm saying the same thing twice. I hope you join us for this season two of Atlantis and season nine of SG1. But until then, take care. I've been Mike. I've been Brad. I've been me. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Goodbye. We always get a warm and fuzzy feeling when we get some feedback on the show, so if you'd like to send us something, then please do so. We'll endeavour to include it in the next show or relevant show if that's more appropriate. You can email us, including an audio message, using gatecastpodcast at gmail.com. And we have groups and pages on both Facebook and Google+. You can search for us using generic Stargate or more specifically Gatecast. We are also on iTunes and Stitcher Internet Radio under Gatecast. And we simply swoon when we get an iTunes rating and review. They help the show get promotion on that service. Twitter seems to be popular and you can find us at the Gatecast which is one word. And finally, there is our main website, gatecast.co.uk, which has a variety of contact and links for keeping our Stargate family all together. You've been listening to The Gatecast, hosted by Alan and Mike. Join us at gatecast.co.uk. Stargate forever. Stargate forever.